Welcome. Good morning. My name is Chad. I am senior pastor here at Sovereign Grace. I've not been in the pulpit much since May. The Lord has blessed us with several men who handle the word of truth well, and we're thankful for that. With that said, turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 119. We're going to begin reading in verse 161. If you don't remember how Psalm 119 is broken down, it's broken down in 22 eight-verse increments around the Hebrew alphabet. Today we are in Sin and Shin. If you saw Sin and Shin in Hebrew, it looks sort of like a W with a dot over one sign. Sin is the dots over the left side of the W and Shin over the right. When I was actually learning Hebrew, I memorized it by sinners to the left of me and shinners to the right. I know, goofy, but that's what I did. So we're there in Sin and Shin at verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this, your word, as the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, speaks to us by his spirit. A word you have superintended by the Spirit, not only for Israel in David's time, but for your people in every age. Pray that we would receive this word as it is your word. That we would be like David is here, those who in the face of much tumult, much trial, even persecution, display godly Christian character. Pray that you would do that in us by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We've all been troubled by global events in the last couple of years. We've been shaken by political, social, cultural, and economic turmoil. We've experienced anxiety about our own lives and our own futures. We've watched family members die. We have watched our profession, if you will, get changed by a variety of pressures. We've changed locations. We've altered our children's educational paths. We've even changed churches. Many of you still worry about your current job or your current business. Most of us are concerned about the future of our nation and the broad liberties we once enjoyed. Likely all of us are being unsettled or have been unsettled in recent years by seeing Christianity pushed to the political and sociocultural margins of the society. We're all learning that no matter how blessed America has been, she remains one of the nations mentioned in Psalm 2. If you will, look with me at Psalm 2, because Psalm 1 and 2 really are the doorway to the Psalter or to all of the Psalms, and so we are reminded in Psalm 2 of the context in which David is praying even in Psalm 119. So look there at Psalm 2 and verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot 
in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. That's the counsel of the wicked that the rulers are walking in mentioned in Psalm 1. Do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The nations, the kings of the earth, the rulers, are taking wicked counsel together. And what are they saying? Against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We see, even in our nation, that we are a nation where our rulers are taking counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. So as Christians, in the face of what seems to be an increasingly hostile and tumultuous time in our world, the question is, what is our life to look like? What does it look like to walk in integrity in the face of difficult, uncertain, and anxious times? This morning, I want to look at how David describes himself in the midst of the worldly opposition, the persecution, the tumultuous times that he faced. And as I do so, I really want to remind us or point us to five characteristics of Christ's people in the midst of tumults and difficulties in this present world. These five characteristics demonstrate, if you will, the basic integrity of the Christian man. Now with that said, they are not an exhaustive test or measure of integrity, but a helpful description of a Christian in the midst of a world in opposition to him. And I pray as we look at these five characteristics in David that the Spirit of Christ would be pleased to conform us to his word. So let's look at the first characteristic. The first characteristic is this. The Christian fears God and not man. The Christian fears God and not man. Look at Psalm 119, verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause. See, the rulers of the earth are taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, who in the immediate historical circumstance of Psalm 2 is King David. And he's saying, these princes persecute me without cause. Now note the contrast. It's a fascinating contrast. But my heart stands in awe of your words. This word awe is the word fear or dread. Now hear the contrast. Princes are persecuting me without cause. In other words, David's saying, I've done nothing sinful to deserve this persecution. In the case of this persecution, I have not merited it. It's unjust. But he doesn't say, and therefore, I tremble in fear of those rulers. But, but my heart stands in awe or dread of your words. It's fascinating. David lives under a godless in this sense, and lawless regime that persecutes him. These are men who are a part of the covenant people of God, but who are denying him, committing idolatry, and persecuting the rightful king. Yet what does David fear? And what does his heart stand in awe? What does he dread? He doesn't dread princes who persecute him. He dreads the Lord and his word. He does not fear the one who can kill the body, but he fears the one who can cast him body and soul into hell. He does not fear the nations that rage and the peoples who plot in vain. He fears the Lord on Zion, God's holy hill. He fears the Son of God whose wrath is quickly kindled. Look at Isaiah chapter 66. We're just a couple books toward the New Testament in Isaiah 
and chapter 66. I want you to hear this connection between trembling before the Lord and his word. Thus, here's Isaiah the prophet speaking, and the Lord is going to speak through him. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. In other words, the Lord looks at the creation and says, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. I'm the king over all of creation. What is the house that you would build for me? I mean, you can't build me a temple that contains me. And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So the Lord is the creator and sovereign of all creation. He created it all. There was a time when it was not, and God spoke, and it came into existence. And he governs it all. Every molecule of this universe, he governs. There's nothing that our hands can fashion that can contain him. He is God. And so the question becomes, to whom does he look? Where does his favor rest? But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. To whom does the Lord look? The man who trembles before him and his word. And what we hear David singing in Psalm 119 is that he is a man who trembles before God and his word. But David doesn't want you to misunderstand his dread of God's word. His dread, his fear, his awe is that of a son who has a good and holy father, not the fear of a slave who has a unrelenting and unforgiving taskmaster. How do I know that? Look at Psalm 119 and verse 62. Psalm 119 and verse 62. I rejoice at your word. See, the word that I stand in dread of, that my heart dreads, that's the same word I also rejoice in. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. He not only fears God's words, he rejoices in them like one who's found a great treasure. His joy in the word is as one who gets the spoil. Pay attention to that language. It's an interesting contrast with 161. The one who gets the spoil is the victor in battle. Princes are persecuting David without cause, and yet he sees himself as the one who is the victor. Yet he is being persecuted. He's not in power. He looks defeated. But the word of God tells him a different story. It tells him of the great victory that is his in the Lord. He's lost all worldly goods, all worldly influence and power, but he has the Lord and his words, and that's enough. Having Christ and his word helps him to rest in the face of worldly opposition and turmoil. Listen to what the 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, how little do crowns and scepters become in the judgment of that man who perceives a more majestic royalty in the commands of his God. We are not likely to be disheartened by persecution or driven by it into sin if the word of God continually has supreme power over our minds. Christian, we do not know what is coming for us in this present world. We don't even know what tomorrow holds. We don't know. But we know him who is ours for eternity. We know him. Listen, if you want to fight for a better America, that's fine. 
that's even a positively good thing. But if you do not do so with your eyes upon heaven, where Christ is seated, with your hope cast upon him, then your fight will only leave you with the emotional ups and downs that are endemic to this sin-sick world. So we must look to Christ. We must listen to his words. I know, I'm going to address this because we're in California and September 14th is upon us and we're all probably thinking about it. We have a recall of a governor who shut down churches for more than a year. We may or may not get the outcome we want. What happens if you wake up September 14th and don't get the outcome you want or September 15th? Maybe by the time they're done counting all these mail-in ballots, who knows what day. You get the point. <laughs> what happens? What happens if you get an outcome that you believe is the opposite of what is necessary to stop the progress of tyranny? What happens if you open up an email from your employer providing you with new mandates that disappoint and concern you and make you question what you ought to do ethically? Or if you hear news that the government is once again trying to keep Christ's church from gathering for worship? Or if you turn on the news and see ever new turmoil in the world, turmoil that appears to be self-inflicted, particularly that turmoil that brings terrible persecution to Christ's church, like we see presently in Afghanistan. What happens when you wake up to that news? I don't recommend you wake up and turn on the news, incidentally, but what happens when it occurs? Then you look over at your Bible, at the Word of God, the God who sits in the heavens and has the earth as his footstool at the word of the God who has given you the superabounding grace that you know in his Son and by the Spirit, and realize, you realize then in that moment that you've already gained all the spoils of the battle. You have Christ and his words, and that is enough. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. This really leads us to the second characteristic of the Christian in tumultuous times. Secondly, the Christian loves the law and hates falsehood. The Christian loves the law and hates falsehood. Look at verse 163. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Do we hate lies and lying? Lying, lies, falsehood, error. It's not something we should ever tolerate. It's something we should hate. It's not something that we wink at and take lightly. It's something we should abhor. The serpent lied in the garden, and we listened to him. That brought sin and death into the world. Look around, saints, at all of the chaos and havoc and destruction that's been brought by lies. Think of the horrifying wrath of God that has come by the provocation of lying. When we lie, we speak with the mouth of Satan, the father of lies. It is as if the shadows of the darkness of hell are coming forth out of the abundance of our hearts, and we're to abhor it. Look again at Psalm 119, verse 63. I hate and abhor falsehood, but, here's the contrast, I love your 
law. Hatred of lying or falsehood is contrasted with loving the law. The law reflects the character of God. It tells us about him. God is the truth, and God speaks the truth. God cannot lie. In him there is no error. There is nothing false. He is the light, and there is no darkness in him at all. Thus, to lie is to be nothing like him. If we love the Lord, then we love his law, for it reflects his character. If we love his law, then we hate and abhor falsehood. If we love the Lord and his law, then we hate any word, any word that provokes us to believe or to act in a manner that opposes God and his word. I think that we don't understand the importance of this to something like doctrine. You know, that brother got that doctrine about God wrong, but he's a nice guy. Does it really matter? If we love the Lord, we abhor falsehood, particularly that falsehood that lies to us about who God is and what he does. I must not only hate the lies told by others, though, I must also hate the lies that I tell to myself and to others. When I lie to myself, I mean, I always joke that I lie to me better than anyone else does because I believe my lies I tell myself. Now, loving the Lord and his word is a gift of the gospel of grace. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. The Son of God, the one who is the truth, came and walked among us. His heart is always true. His mouth never uttered a false or errant word. He walked in the law of God in every thought and affection and action. His ethic, his habit was always truth all the time. He was punished at the cross for our lies, our law-breaking, our sin. And after he rose from the dead for our justification, he ascended to heaven from whence he sent the Holy Spirit, also named the Spirit of Truth. The Holy Spirit has united us to Christ through faith and is conforming us to the image of Christ so that we're becoming more like him. And we must pursue every thought, affection, and action being in conformity with Christ, with the truth, with God's law. We do that through the ordinary means of the word and prayer and the sacraments. We gather together here asking and trusting Christ, the head of the church, to speak by the Spirit and give us the glorious grace of conforming us evermore to himself. We open our Bibles and read. We pray and we plead. We pray and plead that the Lord might convict us of sin and deceit, that he might transform our hearts and minds to love him more, to walk in the truth more and more. I know it seems like to me, at least in our therapeutic age, that we fear acknowledging the truth about ourselves. We fear acknowledging it. We fear calling sin in ourselves what it is, sin. We'd rather make it into identity and embrace it, or a personality type and embrace it, or whatever. You don't need to know what your personality type is to know why you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. But we fear acknowledging the truth about ourselves. We'd rather find excuses for our sin than find grace to cover our sin. Listen, blaming others or blaming circumstances is not a sufficient covering for your sin. Adam and Eve tried that in the garden. And God pointed them to the only one who could deal with their sins, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. We trust, rather, that the blame fell on Christ in our place. That is the only sufficient covering for your sin. And if we found grace in Christ, we can face the truth 
about our own lying flesh. Charles Bridges wrote well of this. He said this, Pray that the arrow of conviction may be dipped in the blood of Christ, and then, however deep and painful be the wound, it cannot be mortal. Mortal indeed it will be to the sin, but healing to the soul. Pray that your hatred of sin may flow from a sense of reconciliation, for never will it be so perfect as when you feel yourself sheltered from its everlasting curse. To lie before your Savior as his redeemed sinner and to wash his feet with your tears of contrition will be your highest and happiest privilege on this side of heaven. In this spirit and daily posture, you will most clearly manifest the inseparable connection of a hatred of lying ways with a love for the law of God. Let's turn to the third characteristic of the Christian in the midst of worldly trouble. Third, the Christian praises the Lord continually for his righteousness. Praise the Lord continually for his righteousness. Look at verse 164. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. David says he prays seven times a day. The point here is not that David is involved in some duty of formalism that requires seven prayers per day. That's not the point he's driving at. It's a focus upon the completeness or the constancy of his prayer. He's just throughout the day continually praising the Lord. For what? For your righteous rules. What's the nature of his continual prayer? His praising, he is praising God, praising God for his righteous rules, or better, his righteous judgments. Here is a man being persecuted by worldly powers who throughout the day is praising God, praising him for what? For his righteous judgments. See, David knows the Lord is righteous, and David knows that the Lord does righteousness. He will judge rightly and justly. He knows the Lord has already promised to save his people and destroy his enemies. He knows that, and so he praises the Lord all throughout the day in that reality. He knows, David knows because he sang it, he knows the decree of the Father to the Son. What is the decree of the Father to the Son? Verse seven of Psalm two, I will tell of the decree. Now here is David, by the Holy Spirit, speaking in the person of the Son. Here is the eternal Son, the one who took flesh to himself, our Messiah. Hear what he says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, David knows the righteous judgment of God is that his son will come in the person of our Messiah, Christ, Jesus, and he will crush his enemies and he will save his people. He also knows the rest of that psalm, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so he praises the Lord. Do we praise the Lord throughout the day for his righteous judgments? Do we pray from a heart of thanksgiving? Thanksgiving for the truth that Christ is on the throne and he will return to judge the living and the dead. Do we live daily with a constant focus upon the righteousness of God in Christ, his rule and his reign, his coming return and the resurrection unto everlasting joy 
or in the case of those who do not look to Christ, everlasting judgment. We ought to praise God throughout the day for these truths. It is in fact when we do praise God throughout the day for these truths that we no longer fear man who persecutes us, but fear God and his words. And as we do, please remember that we pray and read our Bibles religiously. That's a good thing, to do it over and over and over again to establish the habit. We pray and read our Bibles and gather for corporate worship religiously, not to improve upon grace, but to rest in it. We may not feel thankful. Our hearts may not be lifted up in the morning to praise and gratitude, but we dutifully engage the word of God in prayer, meditating upon the mercies of God, both temporal, in other words, the many mercies he shows you in this life, and eternal, asking the Lord to fan to flame the spark of praise that he lit in us when we first heard the word being spoken to us. Let's now look at the fourth characteristic of the Christian in the face of worldly trouble. Fourth, the Christian has peace because he knows what God's word says. Look at Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. See, the Christian has peace because he knows what God's word says. He has his law. David says that those who love God's word have great peace. Nothing can make them stumble. The law is the revealed will of God. We know from this book what he wants from us. We know. This Bible, we know what he wants from us. And there's peace in knowing his word. We know from his word what he promises and what he requires. Further, there's peace in knowing that the secret things belong to the Lord our God and the things that have been revealed to us in this law belong to us. See, why did the Lord bring us here? Why did the Lord decree this event to happen? What does the Lord want me to do next? How should I handle the death of a loved one? Why did he do that? See, those are all the secret things that belong to him. Those are the things for which we bear no responsibility. We're responsible for what he's revealed to us in his word. My children are now adults, and so my role's changed. Some of you parents whose children have grown, your role's changed too. I'm happy to give advice if they ask, and I'm all too happy to give it when they're not asking. <laughs> but that's not good. I need to back off of that. But at this point, the only real imperative that I can provide them with is obey God's law and do what you want. Obey God's law and do what you want. I have to embrace that same truth myself. Obey God's law and do what you want. But the first half of that's key, isn't it? Obey God's law. To obey God's law is life and peace. To disobey God's law is sin and death. It is to be at war with God to disobey his law. To be in rebellion against him. It is lawlessness. And no matter how much prosperity the enemy of God experiences in this life, he will never, the enemy of God, will never be free of slavery to sin and death. That's his objective state. He is, in fact, objectively a slave to sin and death. Further, the unbeliever, the enemy of God, will never be free of slavery to the fear of death. That's his subjective state. He is in slavery to the fear of death. But if we obey the law as those who know Christ, who've been saved by him, 
that no matter the turmoil we face from our enemies, we will know life and peace. Both objectively, we will be at peace with God and spiritually alive, and subjectively, we'll experience the peace that he gives to us by grace. But you might object, if you're listening closely, does not the law terrify my conscience and convict me of guilt? How does obeying it give me peace? Does not the law show to me that I'm condemned before the bar of God's justice? Does it not show me that I'm God's enemy and thus I have no peace? Does that objective reality not terrify my conscience and leave me without subjective personal peace? Yes, the law of God certainly does that if you do not know Jesus Christ by faith. It does that. But if you're looking to Jesus in faith, then you know that Jesus has fulfilled the law of God in your place. Therefore, Paul says, Romans 5.1, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Objectively, we are no longer his enemy, but his friends. Look at Romans 8. I'll try to go a little bit quickly here. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the law, weakened by the flesh, condemned you. But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How has God done that? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. In Christ, you have peace with God. You're no longer his enemy, but his friend. The law is no longer a burden to you, but a delight. You know God's peace objectively, he is your friend, and subjectively you can rest in him. So while your state may look pitiable to the world in suffering as a Christian, it is not so. Charles Bridges going on to talk about the Christian in difficulty, talking about how it looks pitiable to the world, said this, looked at with an eye of sense, slighted by the world, and often chastened with the rod of affliction, he, the Christian, is an object of pity. But look at him with the eye of faith. He loves the law of his God, and his heritage is peace. Do you know Christ? I'm sure some of you here are guests of members of this church. Have you looked to Christ in faith? Do you recognize that you're a sinner, that you're one who has violated God's law? You're not just someone who's been broken or hurt by what others have done to you. You are someone who has rebelled against your holy creator, and you are justly under the condemnation of death and eternal judgment. It has been appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Do you recognize that about yourself? And are you looking to Christ in faith, trusting that Jesus came and kept the law that you failed to keep? That Jesus went to the cross. He kept not only the precept of the law in his life and death, but he kept the penalty of the law in your place. He took it upon himself so that you'd be forgiven of your sins, cleansed of all unrighteousness. So if you look to him in faith, you are made new. You're saved, declared righteous. 
He's yours and you're his. Are you trusting him? Turning from your lawlessness, looking to him alone. If you're not, I encourage you to do so. I plead with you to do so. I'd love to talk to you after the service about what it means to look to him in faith and trust him. Let's consider the fifth characteristic of the Christian in the face of worldly trouble. The Christian is obedient to God's law from the heart. Look again at Psalm 119 and verse 166. We'll just go from 166 through 168. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. It's in the hoping for the salvation the Lord is giving to David that he does his commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. It's sort of a startling section, particularly really the last phrase of the last verse. How did David come to the law to keep the law, to have the kind of confidence before the Lord in his law keeping that he can say, I keep your precepts and testimonies with this disclaimer or this actually joinder for all my ways are before you. In other words, Lord, everything I do, you see, you know. And in the midst of knowing you see and know everything I do, I can say I keep your precepts and testimonies. I love your law exceedingly. I do your commandments. How does he do that? Please hear the answer. It begins there. I hope for your salvation, O Lord. The Lord saved him. The Lord saves him. And if you're in Christ through faith, the Lord saved you too. Christ took the Christian's law-breaking sin upon himself, and Christ imputed his own law-keeping righteousness to the Christian. Christ took our filthy rags and clothed us with his own righteousness. And in doing so, the Lord wrote the law upon the Christian's heart and caused him to walk in his statutes. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and then in Jeremiah 32. So you can attempt to keep the law in a sort of performative way. When I do so, I don't hope in the Lord's grace in Christ. I don't rest in Christ. Rather, I labor for his favor. I rest in my own efforts. That's why I'm so troubled all the time. I do not have a filial or godly fear. In other words, I don't have the fear of a son who has a good father. Rather, I have the fear of a slave with a cruel taskmaster. I perform the works of the law as a hypocrite. I do not love the Lord and his law and see it as a delight. Rather, the law for me is a heavy yoke, a burden. That is the state of the man who does not look to Christ or the man who does not continue looking to Christ. Christ's yoke, though, is easy and his burden is light. And so we look to him. We look to him. Unbeliever, all your efforts to clean up your act and to get yourself on the straight and narrow are just mere hypocrisy. Even if you're a civilly decent person, and I know many unbelievers who are very good and decent people, if you will, even if that's the case, you're still like a whitewashed tomb full of dead man's bones. You look clean on the outside, but inside, you're stained with sin. Please hear this. Christ is the narrow path. He is the way. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has kept the precept and penalty of the law for all who believe. So we look to him and we're saved. And I want to follow up with believers. Sovereign grace, do not cease resting in those truths. Don't cease resting in Christ. 
You do not become a believer and then say, thanks for pulling the plow this far, Jesus. I'll pull it the rest of the way. You keep looking to him because you know he carries you all the way home. So you keep looking to him. Yes, you actively participate. I'm not saying let go and let God and just be passive and wait for the Spirit to somehow carry you into greater levels of holiness. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you actively participate in the means of grace. Gather for the preaching of the word, for the administration of the sacraments, for prayer. But you understand that those are means of grace and not works of the law. They are the means by which the Spirit of Christ transforms you day by day into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. And it's my prayer that the Lord would make it so in all his people at Sovereign Grace. Sovereign Grace, may the Spirit be pleased to grow us in Christian character as we face worldly trouble. May we cast all our fears, anxieties, doubts, and troubles upon him, knowing he is an anchor for our souls, a rock who cannot be shaken. May we trust him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take your word and by your spirit drive it into our hearts and minds. You would conform us to the image of your son, that we would be those who in the face of worldly trouble, circumstances, anxieties, difficulties, that we would look to Christ, rest in him, that we would even rejoice in the sufferings of this present world, for we know that they bring about endurance and character and hope, and hope does not disappoint. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.